here we go. Uh, it's Think Tank. We run it all the way up till the top of the hour at 8 o'clock on this Tuesday morning when we'll shoot up to a high of 13 degrees. So picture all our guests in uh, shirt sleeves and leave it at short sleeves. Shirt sleeves. Leave it at that. Steve Pakin, uh, author and broadcaster and host of TVO's The Agenda at 8 o'clock and 11 o'clock. It's great to have you. And I'm delighted your stitches are now out. That's a beautiful thing. Who, who, who told you? Oh, I told you. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. I had it. I always, I took a photo of myself at the hospital and I didn't explain that it was a knee surgery. So people are like, I think really were. I got more response, Steve, than I thought I'd get. And I'm like, oh, I didn't explain why I'm there. So, uh, you know, because it's. Because you're deeply loved. I, right. Yeah. I think that must be it. Chloe Brown is a former mayoral candidate and we love having her on our show on a regular basis. It's great to have you on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And joining us as well, a very familiar voice to listeners on this show uh, because he's done so much great reporting for us here. He is Amar Khan and uh, and a runner as well. Like you're your meniscus, your menisci, you're fine. And I've had two surgeries in the last four years. So I got to start living like you, Amar. Yeah, you, you got to start moving a little bit. That's like it. I'm wearing, a, I'm wearing a cutoff shirt right now looking at the That's what we tower. want. <laughs> I'm, ready, I'm ready for something in summer. Bring it on. All right, we'll send the authorities over. Let's get a real sense of our police presence given uh, you're, you're facing the CN Tower wearing a cutoff T-shirt. That, that's the threat of I've ever heard one. Um, let's start here, uh, gang. Colleges and universities. Big cash injection of $1.3 billion yesterday. A little more to pay, 5% for out-of-province students and families. I'd love to get all your thoughts on that intriguing principle. And the new news this morning is our own Colin DeMello noted there was a big push in the ministry and among some cabinet to raise tuition 5% over three years for Ontario students. But Doug Ford said no at a news conference a couple weeks ago, and that kind of stopped it cold. I want you to listen to Jill Dunlop. Um, I did the whole news conference, so you don't have to. Here's some of what she said yesterday. Quite the change of tone. You went from saying that you were going to work hand in hand with the government on this file, and now you're talking about it being a unilateral decision and quite disruptive. So, yes or no, do you disagree with the government, the federal government's decision to cap uh, international students? Well, thank you very much for the question. And absolutely, the decision was made by the federal government. It was a unilateral decision with absolutely no consultation with the provinces or the sector. That's not an answer. Do you have a list of, was that a yes or a no? Thank you very much for the question. As I said, I have been very disturbed by the lack of consultation the, the federal government has made. Absolutely no consultation with the provinces, with the sector, but we are working with the sector and I will be responding to the directive that is made by the federal government before the March 31st deadline. Okay, Chloe Brown, let's start with you. Um, listen, by the way, not everybody's as good at, at, at the same things. I, I can't change a muffler in a, in a car. Uh, but you know where I'm going. That was a very, that's a very stunted response. The overall message uh, from Jill Dunlop yesterday about colleges and universities, how do you view it and how do you view tuition holding for Ontario kids? That was one of the most painful interviews <laughs> I've ever witnessed. Um, I, honestly, it's, it's stressful to think that the kids out of province are going to be paying more. So it's going to penalize the kids from the Atlantic, the territories. Mm-hmm. And they already don't get enough. And honestly, I, I'm glad that there's a freeze at the Ontario level because I think that this is an opportunity for the province who is responsible for this policy to talk to the colleges and the universities about not just diversifying their courses, but having a very solid offering. Because 
Um, I believe a few years ago, they got money from the feds through the workforce development agreements and a variety of other uh, funding from ESDC. But what the province of Ontario does is spend on infrastructure development, not actual people. So this is where the province really needs to take responsibility for what it's done. Uh, Amar, I want to see how uh, you view it. And, and uh, I, by the way, I didn't play that clip just because we're, we're, we'll find out the identity of the that's not an answer guy. That, that, that's not an answer guy could be a hero in a different uh, time and place. But what, what did you make of, uh, of them holding the line on tuition? Yeah, I think it's definitely a very politically savvy move because it's going to be held uh, until the next provincial election is held. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, Premier Ford very clearly knowing, you know, who he's playing this policy for. Um, It's obviously great for Ontario students. Uh, The cost of living is obviously so, so much right now uh, for families to have to take that on. But this is going to have this is going to affect international students uh, a lot more. It's, It's pretty clear and obvious there that they're going to have to chip in a little bit more and more and more as they have con- uh, consistently done to try to, uh, you know, offset the costs of uh, students coming here. So I think it's uh, a message. I think it's a policy that this government could have avoided because for so many years, for decades now, uh, and this is not just in Ontario, but across uh, the, the country, uh, we've relied on international students to make up money and this is something that wasn't sustainable at the federal level it was told to many provinces many uh, governments that it wasn't sustainable to rely on international students and you had to diversify and they haven't and now there's a short change now they don't have money and now there's public money needing to be spent to kind of offset that Um, so i think many of these uh, institutions need to look at themselves and say do we need this program and you know i'm a journalist you're a journalist I would look at many journalism uh, programs and say, do we know, do we need those right now in an industry that is fledgling and 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 losing a lot of jobs? Yeah, and a, and a few and in, a, you're right, and a few in college have fallen by the wayside, um, which is sad to see, but a sign a sign of the times. Um, I'd make that point. I'll come back to you on this. I want to get uh, Steve in. Steve, when um, I think Amar and, and Chloe make the points, um, there's a lot of finger pointing to go around. There's a lot of mistakes the federal government's made with uh, overextending visas and not capping them, and there's a lot of mistakes the province made in terms of oversight. It's this is her baby. This is the province's baby, and they let things get way out of control and out of hand in a lot of communities. Well, I was sitting beside the guy who said, that's not an answer. (laughs) I went to the press conference (laughs) yesterday. I won't out him, but I will. I don't want to repeat everything that's just been said. So let me pick up on some comments that you made in the last half hour, which is which is the, the minister's performance yesterday in the news conference wasn't great. And the reason it wasn't great was she looked exactly like a minister who had been really over programmed. And by that, I mean, She was clearly told every time somebody asks you a question, you say, thank you for the question, because she did virtually every single time. And when you do that for a half an hour straight, it's just not a good look. The second thing was she was clearly told by her people, it doesn't matter what the question is. Ignore the question. Just keep hitting your talking points over and over and over again. Now, when you watch the news last night, and you saw a 20-second clip of her in a, in a two-minute news story or a minute-and-a-half news story, that's not a bad thing. You've got one decent 20-second excerpt that, you know, that you've got out there, 
and it summarizes what she wanted to say. And therefore, her people today are saying, didn't we do a great job over-programming the minister? On the other hand, if you watched it live or if you sat through it, it was a disaster. It was a disaster. Yeah. But that's, just, but that's probably to your point, and it's an awesome point to make. That's probably 5 to 10% of the people, and 90 to 95% of the people just saw the news clip. Or they saw nothing at all, and they just know tuition's held, held where it is. Quite correct. And for the, for, the, for the smaller percentage of the people who would have seen that live or who would have attended it uh, or who would have heard some discussion about it, as we're having right now, that's going to be a problem for the minister. But for the people who only saw 15 seconds on the news last night, it seemed fine. Uh, that's distressing to me. But anyway, there you go. Well, the, well and I'm going to come to Chloe here and Chloe's going to uh, blush because I'm going to fawn all over her. But when I watched you in mayoral debates or when you'd come in and visit, you're anti being programmed. You're not programmed at all. And it would frustrate you to debate John Tory or to debate other mayoral candidates who just have talking points, who have to look down at the notes just to give the simplest answers or not even answer the proper question, Chloe. Because my job's on the line. <laughs> I don't really have that privilege that politicians have. When my manager comes to me and they ask for a report or data, I need to be prepared. And this is where there needs to be better accountability. And shout out to that guy that said it's not an answer because they <laughs> need to be called out more often for this. And the more the public does it, the better it becomes more muscle memory than reflex. That was Steve Pakin doing a funny. It was you doing a funny voice, Steve. You better tell us now. That's that was you just doing a like a Groucho Marx type voice to make a way too old a reference. I'm sorry, it was not me. I take credit <laughs> if I did it, but it was not me. But I'll tell you what. That was. I've seen a lot of news conferences at Queens Park. That was one of the scrappier ones. It was one of the sparkier ones because because the the minister was just refusing to answer any of the questions. She was just sticking so much to talking points that it was frustrating, annoying, and I think at the end of the day because. There will be other conversations today on talk radio about this. It didn't serve her well. She needs to be more normal. But, uh, Amar, you've seen it before, and you've seen talkative politicians who can't wait to get in front of a camera or a microphone. We've said for ages on our show, I'll tell you this, in the last year when this, this story's been exploding, gee, I wonder if we could get Jill Dunlop on the phone to answer some, some uh, unscripted questions. Well, now I know why we can't. It's disastrous when it happens. Yeah, I, I think this is what you see when you speak to a lot of different politicians. There's, there are ones that are incredibly comfortable. Greg, they can have a conversation. They can stand in front of you. They can be there for about 25 minutes, and they can just talk to you about policy. They can talk to you like a human being. And then there's others that are very robotic, and it it shows directly you know, that maybe they they are sticking too much to – those talking points, as Steve mentioned, and it can be incredibly frustrating as a journalist. Mm. You know, uh, and this is not just a one-off with Jim Jill Dunlop. Uh, we've seen it with, uh, uh, you know, Richard Southern having uh, battles with Todd Mc McCarthy and him his inability to answer mm. questions about Staples ending up as a sole source deal for Service Ontario. There needs to just be greater uh, levity and, and conversations uh, with Ford. Which is ironic because I think the premier speaks like a regular Ontarian, but many of his ministers really yeah. decide to take these business approaches that are incredibly frustrating. But they they, they make the six o'clock news, they're the 20 second clips, and those live on. If you go on social media, you don't see these five minute excerpts really of no. uh, these, these press conferences. So 
It, it saves Someone will cut it together. Money. Does what it's intended to do. Well, I would have the example I would have used Omar was Greg Brady and Marilee Fullerton uh, when she was the long-term care minister, and I said, "How many long-term care homes have you visited during the pandemic?" And it was like, "We're investing in the infrastructure." <laughs> like I asked every open-ended question I could. I'm like, "Have you been to one? You're the minister. They might expect to see you at least outside of one." I got to move on here. I want to get to like-minded judges, and I want to get to Steve on this. Um, th- this is a comment Doug Ford made, and he's taken some. Some heed for it and others are saying, yes, this happens all the time. Judges and, and the judicial system is politicized. It's basically a sport in the United States with the Democrats and Republicans, especially with the Supreme Court. Um, is there a solution to governments just making patronage appointments and hiring judges by ideology and slant? Or are we getting something wrong here in Canada? Well, of course, there's a solution. The solution is that that governments take advice from expert committees that are staffed by people who represent the prosecution, the Crown, who represent defense lawyers as well. So there's a broad base of people who make recommendations, uh, arrive at a consensus on candidates, pass those candidates' names on to the Attorney General, and the Attorney General and the Premier appoint them. That's the solution. Now, whether there's something going on here that dramatically departs from that, uh, it's hard to say. Um, I I know that the judicial system has reacted very negatively to what the premier has Mm -hmm. suggested here. But I read Matt Gurney's piece on our website, TVO.org. And Matt says, you know, this is one of those moments from Casablanca, the movie where you walked in and you're shocked to find gambling happening in a casino. (laughs) You know, the notion that liberals, when they are in power, don't appoint like minded judges to their philosophy. I mean, clearly that happens as well. So I think one of the things that's going on here is that the premier has simply articulated out loud something that that has been going on for a long time, but maybe has not been said so explicitly. Let's put it that way. Chloe, did the premier just say something out loud that we all know to be true? Uh, we've had, what, eight years of Justin Trudeau as prime minister. He's not going to put a, um, how would I put, a Clarence Thomas type on the Canadian Supreme Court. We know that. Did he just say something out loud that we all know exists? Yeah, because we see it in the Senate at the federal level. Yeah. And this is where I would like to build off of Steve's idea and say maybe there should be an election amongst that profession to elevate judges. Because as a member of the public, I'm not too familiar with legalese to be making these decisions, and neither are most elected officials. So maybe there could be a more professional way that that profession brings forward these important positions. But yeah, as someone who's a recipient of the legal system, I would hope that there's a more objective process going forward because we've seen the judges misbehave and make some really bad mm-hmm. calls because there's not enough training about the communities that they're serving. So, yeah, it's an opportunity to modernize our court systems. Amar, I'm not going to say it's not a story. It is a story because of what the premier said. But to Chloe's point, maybe this has just been happening as, as long as governments have been appointing judges. Oh, I, I, I don't doubt that 100 percent. You know, uh, this happened in the States with the political thicket uh, with Baker v. Carr, a, a redistricting uh, case. And, you know, just started with the politicization there. I think the response uh, from the different lawyers associations being so negative is really describes how many uh, Ontarians feel about this. Many Canadians would feel about knowing about this. You, you probably had an idea, but the confirmation of it, I think, is really troubling to hear. And how does it ultimately make you feel? I don't know. kind of worries me a bit. 
Uh, it's a bit disturbing. So I think the best way to do it is have those election style systems. Obviously, even with those, we know there can be popularity contests. Uh, it can be a resource based system sometimes. But I think allowing the profession to kind of self-govern itself is one of the better measures uh, here, especially because who are the people that are going to be holding these elections? They're lawyers. They're people that are routinely uh, folks that we're, we're told to trust. Um, they're obviously very savvy, but I think that's a better mm. measure than having politics involved into this, because I, I think every person or many people in Ontario will just look at that and feel kind of icky that, you know, we're choosing people just based on political standing when it comes to our law. And that's mm. already been tricky, as we've seen, uh, you know, in, in many cases. By the way, how many of the four of us have seen um, confirmation about the with Kerry Washington? Anybody seen it? No. no. So good. There's not many. Steve knows that there's not many uh, political thrillers involving Canadian Supreme Court nominations. I feel like those wouldn't be big box office hits, Steve. Uh, go see the Rosie Abella documentary. <laughs> that, that'd be better. That would be that would be better. Let's get to World Cup 2026. Um, everybody knows I love soccer, excited for it. But what a bad deal for the city. Chloe, you and I have talked about many times this deal. There's no federal commitment of money, no provincial commitment of money. John Tory signs it in 2018 now. I do think it's important. I do think the city could be a shining diamond by 26 for tens of millions of people to visit or see our matches. But we've had a rather disastrous scenario. Before I get to Chloe, I want you to hear Olivia Chow from yesterday talking about the cost going up. The extra cost is uh, caused by the rate of inflation. Everything has gone up dramatically. I make sure that amount is reflected in the budget because it wasn't before. Also, uh, we're hosting an extra game. So uh, we will uh, invite the federal government, uh, which because they signed a bid, they uh, are responsible for about 35% of the cost. We invite them to contribute and they're committed to, uh, to supporting the bid. Okay, you're two different things there. They're invited to contribute, Chloe, um, and they're responsible. There's nothing on paper that says the federal government has to kick in. I know how bad it would look if it did. But I don't I don't get Chow's response and I don't get this money going up when this is all about so much of the cost is about stadium infrastructure. So I'm I'm a little lost why this is ballooning. How do you view it? So the 90 day probation period for Olivia Chow is over and I need her to stop talking in a passive voice. This whole we're going to invite other levels of government to participate is BS to me. Right now we're going through a housing crisis and a variety of things we cannot afford to Basically, stroke MLSE's ego. If MLSE wants these games, they have enough money to upgrade their own facilities. They don't need to dip into the public's pocket. And I don't think six games is enough to be taking that much. Um, in context, the feds gave us $114 million. No, the province, my bad. The yeah. province gave us $114 million for the housing uh, bonuses. And that wouldn't even cover a third of that cost. You know what I mean? This is where I need Olivia to actually put her foot down and say, we cannot do this. MLSE, I'm sorry, but you need to step up. Amar, the, again, you can be the biggest sports fan, biggest soccer fan. Nobody could deny what a bad deal this is for the city. Yeah, I think it's uh, undeniable at this point. The province has already said they're going to chip in, but... You know, I did confirm with some sources at the federal government that there is an intention. They will put money up. Uh, that number just, you know, it's unclear what it's going to be. Is it going to be 10 million? Is it going to be 20? Is it going to be 150 million? Uh, you never really know with the federal government and especially their relationship with Toronto. 
seems to be a bit of a fraught one for sure. But yeah, this just seems like a, con- a continuously bad deal for the city of Toronto and the people constantly making off as uh, running the gamut here are the are, are MLSC. They're getting to run the ship and they're not having to to pitch in any money. Uh, they look better for it. BMO Field is going to be rocking. It's going to uh, you know, stay in the, the minds of people. It's probably going to boost some sales for Toronto FC. Um, they're going to constantly have events there. I think yeah. the city needed to have greater investment from MLSC and from partners here. I think that what the province has done, at least, um, in coming in on this is said that you know our money can't go towards uh, private corporations. It has to be used for public spending. So at yeah. least, you know, there's 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 a desire there to try to put this money towards use that the public will yeah. benefit from. But uh, will all of that $380 million do that? Not necessarily. Steve, I'll give you a minute here. This was always a hard sell because you had to expand the capacity of 30,000. The other 15 stadiums, 13 in the U.S., two in Mexico, they're just plug and play. They're massive stadiums already. They don't need hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure. Yeah, good points. All true. I think Mayor Chow, when she makes a deal to the feds, they'll have some pretty good evidence on her side to make that pitch. Namely, that if a whole lot of people end up coming to the Toronto area for this, you know, enormously significant event, the the money that they will be spending, most of that revenue realized will go to the federal government. It'll be additional purchases. It'll be hotel stays. Mm -hmm. It'll be taxes that people pay. So the feds are going to realize a windfall from this. And as a result, that's the argument the American used to say, as a result, you guys got to pony up and help us out here. Yeah, it's a mess. Well, tw- about 27 months to figure it out, which sounds like forever. It is not in terms of planning uh, the biggest sporting event on the planet. Love having you all three on this morning. Thanks very much for this. Thanks, Greg. Be well. Thank you. There's Chloe Brown, Amar Khan, and Steve Pakin.